Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. It's the second week of October. Ooh. <laughs> October's just the best. It is the season for Scream Scene. The Scream Season. Yes. <laughs> what are we watching today, Ben? Oh, uh, well, today we are watching one of my favorite horror movies, Vampire, from 1932, directed by Carl Theodore Dreyer. You guys have the same middle name. Yes! We're both (laughs) Theodores. We've watched this movie before. I'm not a fan of this movie. Yeah, you don't really like it, which I don't understand. Um, <laughs> you got this movie for me for a Christmas present. Mm-hmm. Uh, you bought the Criterion release of it for me. and We've watched it a few times. Um, I've watched it more times than you, but like you've seen it multiple times by now as well. And yeah, I really like it. I don't know. Yeah, and what's kind of funny is like I don't like this movie, but I love Usher. You hate Fall of the House of Usher, and love this. Yeah, I mean... But they're very similar in their, like, dreamy, nightmare feelings. Yes, they're they're two very similar movies. I think that's probably going to come up uh, quite a bit in our ranking discussion, the similarity between the two. Um, I certainly foresaw it being something that was going to come up when we watched Usher. I, I don't hate Usher. That's a bit of a strong word. But, um, <laughs> but I fall asleep during it. And uh, I don't fall asleep during this movie, so... Vampire's kind of a bit of an outlier in terms of the development of the horror film up to this point. As you said, it, it is very similar to Fall of the House of Usher, and it, it has a lot more in its production and similarity with that film than what we've been watching up to this point, in that it's a European indie film made by an artistic auteur. Mm-hmm. Um, this is our first time kind of heading back into European film for a while, actually, uh, since sound film, because we've kind of been on this long string of the rise of the Hollywood horror film. Yeah, I guess our last foreign film was Fall of the House of Usher. As kind of an outlier, Vampire requires a bit of explanation. Um, <laughs> it's one of the films that probably requires or benefits from context setting the most out of some of these films we've covered. So, as I said, uh, it's directed by Carl Theodore Dreyer, who's considered to be one of the great filmmakers of all time, certainly one of the great Danish filmmakers of all time. He was born in Denmark in 1889. His mother was a maid, Josephine Bernhardine Nielsen, and his father was her employer, Jens Christian Thorpe. Yeah. Who, after he was born, put him up for adoption. So at age two, having spent the first two years of his life in orphanages, he was adopted by typographer Carl Theodore Dreyer and his wife, Marie. His adoptive parents were emotionally distant and cold to him. They constantly reminded him that he should be lucky that they fed him any food because, uh, you know, he wasn't really their son and they didn't need to do anything for him, so he should feel grateful for what he got kind of thing. Jesus. 
So Dreyer graduated from school at age 16 and left home, never to return. His earliest work was as a journalist, and he joined the film industry initially as a title card writer and then eventually as a screenwriter. His first feature film was produced in Denmark in 1919 called The President. Dreyer would then bounce between Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and Germany for the first half of the 1920s, depending on where he could secure funding. His sixth feature film, 1924's Michael, was produced in Germany and starred Hexen director Benjamin Christensen and is considered one of the classics of gay silent cinema. His seventh film, made in Denmark in 1925, was the highly successful Master of the House, considered a classic of Danish cinema and social satire. This success led Dreyer to be invited to France in 1925 by the Société Générale de Film, where he chose to make a film about Joan of Arc. The Passion of Joan of Arc was then released in 1928 and was immediately critically hailed as one of the greatest films ever made. I love that film. I didn't realize it was the same director. Really? You didn't realize? I'm sure I've told you I'm before. I'm sure you've said, but it's kind of one of those things that it's like, you probably told me, but now I'm just remembering the fact. I don't sure. Know. Yeah. Um, Passion of Joan of Arc is great. Like, go see it now, listeners, if you have not already. <laughs> we'll wait. <laughs> and welcome back to Scream Scene after watching <laughs> The Passion of Joan of Arc. Right. Unfortunately, French nationalists and Catholic censors uh, objected to the film not being French enough, because Dreyer was a Danish director and therefore not qualified to tell the story, and not Catholic enough, since Dreyer was from Denmark and thus a Protestant, not a Catholic. This led to heavy cuts by Catholic censors and other tampering by the French studio to try and bow to the whims of these critics, and also led to a chilly reception of the film by the French public due to these negative publicity campaigns, which caused the film to be a huge financial flop because it had been fairly expensive to make, um, which led to Dreyer being let go from his French contract and having no financial backing for his next film. That sucks, especially when, like, it's such a good film. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing film, and of course its negative reception led to most of the prints of it being lost until the surviving original cut was found in the janitor's closet of a Swedish mental institution. So, planning for Dreyer's next potential film began in 1929, when Dreyer went to England in order to study sound film production. French studios had yet to acquire any sound equipment at this point, and after the failure of the highly artistic Passion of Joan of Arc, Dreyer had decided that his next film needed to have commercial appeal, which would mean shooting in the new format of sound. In London, Dreyer met Danish writer Christian Yule, who pointed out to the director that Dracula, the hit play, had been running for five years at this point. So Dreyer and Yule thus decided to create a vampire movie, since they judged them to be in fashion at the time, <laughs> and scoured literary sources for suitable 
public domain <laughs> inspiration, not wanting to go through the legal hassles that had plagued uh, Murnau's Nosferatu. Uh, what they decided upon as their source was Sheridan Le Fanu's short story collection, In a Glass Darkly, taking elements from two stories in the collection to form the plot for their film. Mm-hmm. Sheridan Le Fanu is a big deal with gothic horror, but also Victorian literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of interesting that they took inspiration from him, given that it's Le Fanu's Carmilla story that helped inspire Bram Stoker's Dracula in the first place. Right. Sheridan Le Fanu was born as Joseph Thomas Sheridan Le Fanu. Okay. And he was an Irish writer of gothic ghost Victorian literature. Sheridan Le Fanu uh, was born in 1814, and he lived until 1873. His father was a Church of Ireland clergyman, which is a Protestant sect. His mother was a writer, his grandmother, Alicia Sheridan Le Fanu, was a writer, and his great-uncle, Richard Brinsley Sheridan, were all writers. Gotcha. So writing is kind of in his blood, but his dad wasn't really a fan of it. He was yeah. on the kind of like a Calvinistic side of everything. Okay. When he was 12, Le Fanu and his family moved to County Limerick, and because it was in the rural areas, uh, his family hired a tutor to teach Le Fanu and his uh, younger brother and older sister. This tutor taught them nothing. <laughs> okay. So Sheridan used his father's library to educate himself. Mm. Uh, and by 15, he was writing and would share this work with his siblings and his mother, but notably not his father. Uh, Sheridan was 31 when his father died. Uh, and they would actually end up selling this library in order to pay off debts due to continued financial difficulty for his family. Got it. He studied law at Trinity College. It seems like a pretty typical thing to go into with a lot of the writers that we look at. And throughout his college career, uh, he was still writing. Uh, his first ghost story, The Ghost and the Bone Setter, was published in 1838 in the Dublin University Magazine. Though he was called to the bar in 1839 at 25 years old, he decided to pursue journalism and continue his fiction writing instead. By, I guess it's always good to have a trade to fall back on. Yeah. By 1840, at 26 years old, he owned several newspapers, yeah. including Dublin Evening Mail. Okay. In December 1844, he married Susanna Bennett, and everything seems to be coming up Le Fanu. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, the Irish famine struck three years later. <laughs> oh no. Le Fanu joined support with colleagues to campaign against Britain's indifference to this crisis. Mm -hmm. And both with the crisis for his country, um, also the turn in, I guess, political support for him, it kind of spelled a downhill turn in his luck. Okay. Le Fanu would struggle financially for, like, the rest of his life, basically. Um, yeah, his support for calling out Britain's indifference to the Irish plight would cost him a nomination as a Tory MP in 1852. Mm. Around this time, his wife, Susanna, began to struggle with mental illness and had a few crises of faith, also kind of timed with Lefanu choosing to no longer attend church services. Okay. Several close relatives of hers, including her own father, had died during this time. In 1858, she suffered what is just kind of called a hysterical attack, and she died the following day. 
Sheridan Le Fanu would not write fiction again until his mother's death in 1861, when he was 47 years old. Mm -hmm. This same year, he became editor and owner of Dublin University Magazine, and a few years later he would publish one of his uh, very notable works, Uncle Silas. Though he revised the magazine's focus towards more of an English audience, uh, his last short stories saw him return to Irish folklore as an inspiration before his death at age 58 in 1873. Though he wrote throughout his entire life and had many successes and popular works, in addition to Uncle Silas, the other notable work that everyone points to is In a Glass Darkly, mm-hmm. published 1872, a year before his death. Oh, okay. This collection of five short stories, and I I should note that they're called short stories, but when you research the titles on their own, they're described as novellas. So it is more likely that In a Glass Darkly was a series of volumes with these novellas included in a single piece. Mm. And this work is presented as posthumous notes from the occult detective Dr. Heselius. Okay, so that's like the frame... The framing narrative for all of these stories being brought together. Gotcha. Um, The five stories included in this publication are Green Tea, The Familiar, which is uh, noted by several people as, like, Le Fanu's best ghost story, Mr. Justice Herbottle, uh, which is also known through an earlier version titled An Account of Some Strange Disturbances in Angier Street. Okay. The Room in the Dragon Volant. And Carmilla, which is about the female vampire. Mm-hmm. And it's these last two stories that definitely we see the inspiration in today's film, Vampire. The inspiration we see from The Room in the Dragon Volant is more, I guess, plot-based in the sense that, oh, this thing happens? Cool, we'll put it in this movie too. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, there's not... It's more in broad strokes that it inspires this film. And here's a synopsis. Sure. Young and naive Englishman Richard Beckett is on his way to Paris, and he helps this young, beautiful woman when her carriage overturns on the road. She's very beautiful and mysterious, and he just must know where she's going, so he follows the carriage to the inn, the Dragon Volant. Uh, he finds out that she's married to this elderly, very mean Comte de Saint-Elire. Saint-Elire, I'll say. <laughs> French is difficult. And it appears that she's very unhappy and was married for her money. Mm-hmm. He also meets a Marquis d'Anville, uh, who is on a secret political mission. <laughs> the Dragon Volant Inn has a reputation of being haunted. Or at least very mysterious. And the reason for this is there is a cursed room where three times in the past, the lodgers have disappeared without a trace despite the door being locked from the inside. And Beckett is given the key to this cursed room. Yeah, of course. Ultimately, because no one online wanted to give a full synopsis, ultimately it's a plot by the woman to steal Beckett's wealth and bury him alive. Okay, wow. But it's kind of neat how you have a bit of that mystery, locked room mystery stuff going on. You can see, like, what parts of that 
you know, it's it's like strip mining this thing for parts in terms of like, oh, well, we like this element and that element in terms of what got put into the film. Yeah. The other short story from this collection that uh, we see a lot of inspiration from is Carmilla. Uh, Carmilla is, of course, a, a very early example of vampire fiction. Mm-hmm. And it's narrated by a young woman who is preyed upon by this female vampire. Again, a carriage accident uh, is the inciting incident here. <laughs> uh, so if, if you can take one lesson from this, it's be wary of carriage accidents. <laughs> Um, so our protagonist is Laura, and a carriage accident happens outside her home. And um, one of the passengers is this young girl, who is her same age, named Carmilla. And she's injured while taking care of her while Carmilla's mom goes off to do some errand for three months. Hey. Uh, Carmilla and Laura uh, grow to become close friends. Mm-hmm. Sometimes Carmilla will make strange romantic advances... She's very secretive, despite Laura's questions about, hey, where did you come from? Where were you going? Uh, and she seems to sleep much of the day. And it, it should be noted that uh, just, like these descriptions of Carmilla could be very much likened to a Byronic archetype. You're right, sure. Meanwhile, girls in a, ne- in a nearby town are dying of some unknown disease. Mm-hmm. Discovering some family heirlooms... Laura realizes that Carmilla resembles Laura's ancestor, Mercalla. Uh, and Carmilla's just like, nah, don't worry about it. Um, but now Laura starts to suffer from this unknown disease, and she begins to have dreams of a cat-like beast pouncing on her at night, and uh, she has this small blue spot on her chest when mm. she wakes up. Laura and her father go to visit a previously mentioned family friend, whose own daughter has died from these uh, similar circumstances, after his daughter befriended a girl named Malarka. Uh, eventually, Carmilla is seen by this family friend who confirms Carmilla to be Malarka. I- I'm paraphrasing quite a lot here. Sure. Um, they go to the tomb of this ancestor, Mercala, and see uh, what looks like a, a living corpse. This corpse is very well preserved, and it, it almost looks like it's breathing, and definitely resembles Carmilla. Mm-hmm. They stake her and cut off her head, thus destroying the vampire Carmilla. Laura never fully recovers from her illness uh, from these vampire attacks. So I feel like if there's one constant with vampires, it's just they're, like, very bad with pseudonyms. <laughs> Like, it's like, I'm Carmilla. I'm absolutely not Mircala or Milarka. But you know that the new doctor down the street, Dr. Acula? I, I think he'll be a good, <laughs> a good family doctor. For sure. Or um, Alucard. Yeah. No one will ever figure this one out. Yeah, what's kind of neat with uh, Lafanu's writing is um, he would frequently rework plots and ideas from earlier writings into later works. And so you kind of see that with that other short story in this collection that's known by another name. Yeah, given that he would rework these ideas, it's interesting how um, his two memorable pieces, Uncle Silas and In a Glass Darkly, came on, like, the later half of his writing career. With, like, this notable break with his wife's passing. Mm. The last thing I just want to note about Lefanu's writing is he's very specialized in tone and effect and atmosphere. Oh. He always implies 
supernatural, and it might be heavily implied that things are supernatural, but there's always a possible natural explanation. Interesting. And these are two very common big characteristics of gothic horror literature. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is Lefanu is someone to point to if you want to see what Victorian gothic literature looks like. In coming up with the screenplay for Vampire, Dreyer and his co-writer Christian Yule definitely used stuff from Lafanu's writing as inspiration, mm. but made their own narrative out of it, taking incidents and character archetypes and character concepts and melding them into a new story. They still were sure to give Lafanu credit in the film, though, for the inspiration. I think them taking his ideas and reworking them, I feel like Sheridan Lafanu would commend them for that, given that he did that with his own writing. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting that you bring up Lafanu's control of mood and atmosphere, because that was the main thing that Dreyer was trying to create with this film. Mm. Um, he stated that his goal was to make a film that showed that fear and terror are largely elements of the subconscious rather than the real world around people and wanted to therefore create a film with a heavy emphasis on a dreamlike atmosphere and mood and that operated on the logic of a nightmare. Dreyer returned to France to try and secure funding for his new project where he was introduced in Paris to a young nobleman named Baron Nicolas de Gunsberg. Born in 1904 in Paris, France, Nicolas de Gunsberg was the heir of a wealthy family of Russian-Jewish bankers who were risen up to the nobility by Hessian Grand Duke Louis III in the 1870s, their title being confirmed in 1874 by Tsar Alexander II of Russia. Nicholas lived in a life of ease and plenty as a free-spirited Paris socialite, spending money lavishly and throwing extravagant costume balls with their own theatrical sets. <laughs> de Gunsberg thought it might be fun to be an actor, and so upon meeting Dreyer, agreed to fund his vampire movie on the condition that the Baron could star in the film. Dreyer agreed, well, and... of course. Yes, and de Gunsberg adopted the pseudonym Julian West in order to avoid embarrassment to his family from appearing in a horror movie. Wishing the film to have a surreal, dreamlike atmosphere, Dreyer wanted to shoot on location in the village of Cortempierre, France, where the story is set. The location shooting led to the decision to keep dialogue to a minimum in order to create most of the film's soundscape in post-production. You know, lowering the cost and, and expense and difficulty of lugging around sound gear in the woods in France. Yeah. Uh, this also led to the decision to hire German silent film composer Wolfgang Zeller to compose music for the film throughout its runtime, uh, rather than just kind of at the start or end, uh, in order to give more of an atmosphere to the largely dialogueless film. Shooting on location also saved money by not requiring the production to rent studio space. <laughs> the lack of much dialogue also allowed another cost-saving measure, which was the casting of a largely amateur cast chosen by Dreyer 
from people who lived in the village of Cortempierre for their faces and their inherent qualities more than their acting ability. Only two members of the cast were professionals, Maurice Schutz, who plays the Lord of the Manor, and Sybil Schmitz, who plays Leon, the girl in the film who has been attacked by the vampire. Mm. In order to ensure maximum profitability, shots that had dialogue in them were shot three times, once in English, once in German, and once in French, with the intent of editing the film for each of these languages. Much of the crew returned from Passion of Joan of Arc, particularly art director Herman Vorm and cinematographer Rudolf Mattei. As part of the film's intended dreamlike aesthetic, Mattei used a soft focus technique called sfumato to give the film a washed-out, fuzzy look created by shooting the movie through a piece of gauze. Mm. The film shot on location through the spring and summer of 1930, with cast and crew living in the chateau that serves as a central location. After the film was shot, Dreyer edited it at facilities in France in 1931, before bringing it to Berlin to do the post-production sound work, including the music recording, since the sound facilities at the Ufa Studios were the best available in Europe at the time. In exchange, Ufa gained German distribution rights to the film, as well as the right to have the film premiere in Germany first. To this end, the German title cards and sound work and dialogue recording were completed first. Ufa made the decision to delay the film's release until May 6, 1932, as they wished the American films Dracula and Frankenstein to be released in Germany first. Oh, to see how they would perform? Yeah, exactly. And um, also because, like, Hollywood films had a certain cachet, uh, so if the Hollywood horror films were successful, that would mean there was a trend for horror that could be then exploited. This meant that Vampire kind of sat finished for quite a while just on a shelf waiting to be released uh, until uh, May 6th of 1932. This delay had the effect of making Vampire's silent film-influenced style and minimalist dialogue seem antiquated. Mm. At the Berlin premiere, the film was booed, and the critical reception was highly negative. This led to Dreyer cutting several scenes and making numerous changes for the French release of the film, which premiered in Paris in September 1932. Audiences demanded their money back, and when this was denied, a riot broke out, which led to police having to use violence to restore order. Uh, it's, it's not looking good for Dreyer or this film. Well, and consider that the, the impetus to make this film was to try and make something that would be commercially successful after the failure commercially of Passion of Joan of Arc in France. Critical reaction in France was mixed. Not as negative as the German reaction, but still largely negative. Dreyer ended up having a nervous breakdown and checked himself into a French mental hospital. As such, he was unable to supervise the Danish release of the film, which premiered in Copenhagen in March of 1933. This version merely subtitled the German version of the film and was received with a mixed reception. Uh, not as negative as Germany and France, but still not really positive. 
With the film a financial failure, the English version, which was planned, was never properly completed, and so instead a version entitled Castle of Doom, with ten minutes cut out, the order of all the scenes changed around, and the dialogue entirely redubbed by American actors to fill out the largely silent runtime with extra chatter throughout the whole movie, debuted as an indie release in America in 1934 to entirely negative reception. Yeah. Dreyer would stay in reclusion, writing articles for film magazines through the 1930s, only returning to produce film in 1943 with Day of Wrath, an historical drama about witch hunts that also served as an allegorical protest of the Nazi occupation of Denmark at the time. Upon the death of his father, Baron Nicholas de Gunsberg learned that his aristocratic family had in fact no money left, and so he used what money he had left to move to New York in 1934. He found work as an editor at Harper's Bazaar, then became the editor-in-chief of Town and Country, before being appointed senior fashion editor of Vogue in 1949. <laughs> Gunsberg would go on to be named to Vanity Fair's International Best Dressed Hall of Fame in 1971, and also mentored designers such as Bill Blass, Oscar de la Renta, and Calvin Klein, who considered Gunsberg his greatest inspiration. That's crazy. <laughs> For years, the German and French versions of Vampire were considered lost. Raymond Rohauer, who we've talked about in earlier episodes, acquired the Danish version, issuing it with English subtitles in black blocks over top of the Danish ones. From this release, numerous poor quality home video versions, such as Image Entertainment's DVD, have been made as the film fell into the public domain. Thanks to these modern releases, however, the film has undergone a modern critical reappraisal and is now largely considered a classic due to its nightmarish atmosphere, its bizarre visual effects, and its radical narrative techniques, and is now regarded as a major work in Carl Dreyer's career. In 2008, Criterion released a comprehensive restoration of the original German version from available print elements with the option for viewing the film with the German intertitles or newly created English intertitles done in the same style. Mm. Uh, this is the best quality version out there currently and is available on DVD and Blu-ray from Criterion. That's how we're watching it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so if you can find a streaming service that uh, shows the Criterion version, I know Criterion has its own streaming service in the U.S., definitely try and support that as, you know... It takes a lot of money and effort to restore films that have such a complicated production history as Vampire. Vampire is technically in the public domain, however, so someone has uploaded the Criterion restoration to YouTube. Uh, this version has the German intertitles throughout with subtitles, and that's the version that I've included on the Scream Scene YouTube playlist. If you'd like to see this playlist, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Before we watch the film, I have a question for you, Ben. Mm -hmm. Did Dreyer ever do much more in filming? Like you mentioned, he returned to film in the 40s, but yeah. I'm wondering what else, if, if he got a happy ending. Right. So after Day of Wrath in 1943, uh, Dreyer made the film Two People in 1945, 
And then in 1955, he made the film The Word, which was another uh, drama film. And then his last film was 1964's Gertrude, before he passed away in 1968. His later films were always kind of very critically well-regarded, and by the time he passed away in the 60s, he was considered, like, one of the great Danish film directors of all time. Um, so I would say that he did get that happy ending, although his career did slow down to kind of this rate of, like, one film every ten years. The Malik rate. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Folks, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and then we will be right back after watching Vampire from 1932. See you on the other side. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Vampire from 1932. Sarah, I'm, I'm curious because I still really loved this movie watching it. I do understand why an audience of the time would have been kind of confused or let down by this film because uh, it is very much kind of a throwback in terms of the development of the genre, but also like film in generally. Mm -hmm. Like it feels like a, a film from a, a bygone era. Um, I'm wondering if your opinion on it has changed at all watching it now in the context of doing the podcast. Well, this might get me in trouble, but this is probably the first time watching this that I was able to stay awake the whole way through. Mm. In past times, I, like, to be completely honest, I have dozed off. I think it would have only have been for, like, two minutes at most. And the only reason why I was able to, like, kind of get through this one is because it's for class. I have to make sure <laughs> I'm awake. I mean, that's sort of what my experience with House of Usher has often been. Like, <laughs> Usher often puts me to sleep, and I'm pretty sure I didn't fall asleep when we watched it for the podcast. So they're very comparable films, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think it's interesting how... Having watched both in the context of watching it for this podcast, I'm still more of a fan of Usher than mm -hmm. I am of this film. Right. It's going to be interesting to kind of dive into that and figure out why that is. Why <laughs> these two very similar films with a very similar kind of style and atmosphere, why one appeals to you more and the other to me. One thing I wanted to talk about before I go into a plot summary mm -hmm. is just a little story about the first time I ever saw this. Sure. Which is, I first saw this movie very late at night on Turner Classic Movies. Nice. And I came in late. Uh, I think I remember coming in when the lead character first runs into the doctor. Mm-hmm. And I think Vampire is a very perfect movie to discover out of nowhere, without really knowing what it is, in the middle of the night. Yeah. Because it's got such that weird dreamlike quality that you just find yourself asking, like, what am I watching? Like, what is this? I find myself asking that as we watch it now. <laughs> what am I watching? What is going on? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I'll give, I'll give uh, our plot summary. But it's, it's sort of important to note that the plot is almost incidental to what makes Vampire like a special film. The stuff that's remarkable about Vampire is largely the imagery. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to get that across 
in an audio format. And also a lot of that imagery is very incidental to kind of what happens in the plot. So I will I'll say what happens in the plot, but that doesn't really express what the experience of watching the movie is like. So the lead character of the film is a young man named Alan Gray, and he's played by Julian West, a.k.a. Baron Nicholas de Gunsberg. And Alan Gray is described as being kind of this, like a, a dreamer. I guess, like he's someone who's really into superstition and the supernatural and ghost stories and dreams and strange things of the past. And he's kind of, I guess, just sort of wandering through France as we start the film. And he stays the night at this inn. And in the middle of the night, his room is broken into by a strange old man who approaches Alan Gray as he lies in bed and just tells him that she must not die, and then leaves him with a package that's sealed and says to be opened in the event of the old man's death. And then this old man leaves. So it's a very sort of bizarre episode. Alan Gray leaves in the morning very disturbed. He spots some shadows on the ground that have no source. They're shadows of people, but there's no people. And he follows them, to an abandoned factory. And getting into this abandoned factory, he sees more of these kind of shadow people, and he follows them through the factory and sees all kinds of bizarre, sort of supernatural occurrences um, that don't make any sense. Uh, most of them centered around him following the shadow of this one-legged soldier. And as he follows these shadows through the factory, we also see a very old woman who walks with a cane walking through this factory, and she seems to have some power over these shadows. And eventually the shadow of the one-legged soldier meets up with its source, uh, a one-legged soldier, who meets up with the old woman, and she sort of says something to him that we can't quite hear. Meanwhile, Alan Gray's still wandering around this factory, and he finds a series of tunnels beneath this uh, abandoned place that lead him up into another building, uh, where he sort of comes up through a trap door and into a room where someone is carving a coffin. And he discovers that he's in sort of the home office of the village doctor. Uh, and he's in the village of Cortempierre, it's worth saying. Uh, and he meets this village doctor and they have a, a bizarre sort of exchange of dialogue. He asks this doctor if he's heard any of these strange sounds that the audience hasn't really heard either. And the doctor's like, no, you'd better go, and uh, sort of kicks Alan Gray out of his house. After Alan leaves, we see this doctor approach another door in his home and help up the old woman with the cane uh, from, like, another sort of underground sort of staircase that leads up into this doctor's home. They go into another room, and the old woman gives the doctor a vial that is clearly poison because it's marked with a big sticker with a skull on it, and she gives it to this doctor for what purpose we do not yet know. Alan Gray, uh, having left the doctor's house, spots some more of these shadow figures and follows them again. This time they lead him to a large manor house. Inside the large manor house, there is a sort of a crisis going on. The house, the lord of the manor, is in fact the old man who gave Alan the package at the hotel. 
The old man has two daughters, Giselle and Leon, and Leon is dying. She's bedridden, she's very, very weak, uh, she's got wounds on her neck, uh, there's like a, hmm. n <laughs> there's a nun who's serving as her nurse, there's a, a sort of older servant uh, man who's looking after the house, and there's a bunch of other servants, but the only ones that are really important for this plot summary are the, the old man and the nun. So the Lord of the Manor has another daughter, Giselle, who's very... Spacey. That's a good word for it. Alan Gray is sort of outside the house and looking in through some windows, and he sees the Lord of the Manor and recognizes him as the man from the hotel. Then we see the shadow of the one-legged soldier appear on the ceiling uh, inside the manor, and the shadow pulls out a rifle and fires and the Lord of the Manor is shot in the back. So Alan Gray rushes to the front door and yells at the servants to let him in, and eventually they let him in, and they get to the old man, uh, and they manage to get Giselle to him before he dies. They send some of the servants into a carriage to go send for the police. It's at this time that Alan is like, oh, hey, I was given a package in case this guy died. Uh, so he pulls out the package and opens it up, and he has been gifted our old friend, the Book of Vampire Exposition from Nosferatu. <laughs> so he starts reading this book, and it starts explaining to him what vampires are. Meanwhile, uh, Giselle, at the window, spots Leon out in the fields outside the house. She's somehow gotten up out of bed and is wandering around. So Alan and Giselle run out to go kind of get her and fetch her back into bed, and by the time they find her, she's sprawled out over the ground with the old woman with the cane from earlier knelt beside her neck because the old woman with the cane is a vampire. The old woman kind of takes off. They get over to Leon's body and bring it back inside, but she's, she's very weak. Alan goes back inside to start reading the book again, and the book's explaining about what vampires are and how they work, and also uh, significantly talks about how vampires will try and get their victims to commit suicide so that the victim's soul goes to hell, because vampires are servants of the devil. And it also talks about how vampires have henchmen who assist them. It is worth saying that none of this movie really takes place at night. Uh, it's hard to tell what time of day it's supposed to be. Everything in this movie is pretty vague. Uh, but it is worth saying that the film itself was shot entirely at sunrise and sunset hours uh, in order to provide the kind of soft outdoor lighting required for the look of the film. And this maybe explains why it took five months to shoot a 75-minute movie that has minimal cast and locations. <laughs> Anyways, so as Alan's reading about this, uh, the doctor shows up, the village doctor, and we see that it's the same guy who we know is in league with the vampire. And this guy, you know, is giving all these instructions for what should be done with Leon, is like, yeah, she's probably going to die. Alan knows that this doctor's, you know, up to no good, and very pointedly, like, reintroduces himself to the doctor, and the doctor just pretends like he's never met Alan before. Uh, the doctor says, well, she's lost a lot of blood, so she needs a blood transfusion. So Alan agrees to be the donor. Around this time, somewhere in here, the carriage comes back, and the driver is dead. We don't really know what caused that, but it means the police aren't coming anytime soon. Alan, after giving blood, is very weak, and he kind of falls into a dream. 
And in the dream, he sees a skeleton holding the vial of poison uh, that the vampire gave the doctor earlier. He wakes up from this dream and rushes into Leon's bedroom, where she is weakly reaching for the poison on her bedside table that the doctor's placed there so she can drink it and kill herself, which will, you know, damn her immortal soul and all that. Alan runs in and grabs the poison out of her hands and stops her from poisoning herself. And, you know, he knows the doctor's up to no good, so they start to try and chase after this doctor. But he's kind of somehow managed to, like, warp his way out of there with some supernatural stuff going on. At a certain point, I think it's when Alan's asleep after giving blood, the old servant in the house sort of takes over reading the book. And as we know from Nosferatu... Uh, He who reads the book is the protagonist of the story. Um, (laughs) And the old man learns that uh, in this very village of Cortempierre, there was this mean old woman named Marguerite Chopin who died without the last rites, and she was unrepentant. After she died, there was like an outbreak of plague in the village and all this kind of stuff. So the uh, old servant starts to put together, you know, who might be the vampire in this case. Alan uh, takes off after the doctor, and, you know, he knows where the doctor lives, so he starts heading in that direction. But he's still very weak and woozy after having given blood, and he does that thing that happens only usually to women in horror movies, where he's, like, running in a field and just trips and falls a bunch of times. (laughs) And he finally, like, finds a bench to sit down on. And that's when, like, the strangest thing in this movie of very strange things happens, where... He bifurcates into two Alan Greys, both of which are semi-see-through. One stays on the bench, and the other gets up from that body and walks towards the doctor's house. He gets to the doctor's house, and we're back in there, and Alan finds that, or at least Alan's spirit, it's hard to say, Alan's spirit finds that, hey, they've finished that coffin they were making earlier. And he takes a look in the coffin, and who's in there but his own body. He also takes another look around the house, and he finds that Giselle has been captured and is tied up in one of the rooms, and the room is locked. Alan also finds that the doctor and the one-legged soldier are here, so he hides in the trap door from earlier, uh, and he does spot where the key to the room Giselle is being kept in is hidden. Then, we kind of shift to the POV of the dead Alan corpse in the coffin and spend a long section of the movie kind of looking up through this coffin. The coffin's lid has a little window in it over the face so that dead Alan can see up through it and people can see Alan in it. And then we see the vampire look over this coffin and we sort of get the sense that, you know, she's pleased that Alan's been done away with. And then a funeral procession takes dead Alan out of the doctor's house and towards the church. And on the way there, it passes by the kind of resting Alan spirit on the bench. And as it does, the procession fades away, and spirit Alan gains his corporeality, as it were, and wakes up. And we're not really sure, like, what has happened, whether that was, like, a dream or or what. Um, because Alan gets dreams kind of throughout the film that impart him important information, but this is sort of a particularly long and disturbing one. That said, 
After Alan wakes up, he spots the old servant heading off to the cemetery to go deal with this vampire problem. So Alan joins up with him. They break open the tomb of Marguerite Chopin. They find her lying in there. Uh, they stake her with a big iron spike, and her body turns into a skeleton. And when that happens, uh, Leon, back at the manor, kind of sits up in bed and tells the nun who's been watching her that... You know, she feels strong, and she feels free, and then she dies. But it's it's peacefully, and it's with the, the understanding that, you know, her soul is going to go go to heaven instead of go to hell, uh, but she still dies from all the blood that she's lost. With the vampire having been dealt with, the next thing that happens is very interesting, which is Alan heads back to the doctor's house, finds... Leon tied up exactly where he saw her in his vision and finds the key exactly where he saw it in his vision and rescues her, uh, which lets us know that whatever was going on in that section of the movie was at least somewhat real. He rescues Giselle. That's kind of the end of the movie for them. Their escape is intercut, however, with the doctor and the one-legged soldier are kind of celebrating because they figure they've done away with Alan Gray when all of a sudden... Shit just goes bad for them very quickly. They suddenly find themselves under assault by the ghost of the Lord of the Manor, who throws the one-legged soldier down a flight of stairs and kills him, and the doctor tries to run away and runs to this old flour mill, but the ghost, like, pursues him there and, like, locks him in, like, this little cage that the flower comes down into when it's being ground. And the old servant shows up, and the doctor's like, hey, man, like, oh, thank God you're here. Like, let me out of here. And the servant just kind of is like, oh, fuck you, and, like, walks away. The machinery starts up, and the flower starts getting ground, and the doctor gets, like, buried under, like, a ton of flour and killed. And then, as I said, Alan and Giselle get to kind of live happily ever after. Uh, and that's that's the movie. That's the end of the movie. It's interesting that you say that Leon dies because I didn't get that. Like, because we, we get this, like, prolonged shot of her laying in bed after she's said that, hey, I'm strong again because we've seen the vampire get staked. But this movie does a lot of, like, random shots that get intercut with other things. Yeah, I mean, the thing about it is it's it's a movie where oftentimes because of the way it's cut, you don't initially know what's happening in a scene. But then once you've seen everything, you can kind of figure out what was happening because now you have all the information to kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together. What pieces of the puzzle show that Leon dies? Well, no one ever says it. Um, I just sort of interpret it because she's in bed and she has this peaceful look on her face and then eventually she closes her eyes. The shots of Leon throughout the movie when she's in bed or there's another scene where she's kind of glaring at Giselle with this kind of hungry look in her eyes because she's turning into a vampire. There's all these shots of her throughout the movie. Remind me a lot of the shots of Joan of Arc in Passion of Joan of Arc. They're these extreme close-ups of this woman suffering. Yeah. And so something about that really tied in for me. Um, but if you really want to know how I know that Leon dies at the end of the movie, uh, it's because I cheated and I looked at the script. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, that's fine. The script also describes the sequence of the film where Alan sort of splits in two and then watches himself be taken to a church and all that kind of stuff as a dream okay. um, that he has, as a prophetic sort of vision that he has, similar to the one where he sees the skeleton with the poison that lets him know to save Leon. Kind of my problem with this movie, because, like, it's a good movie, 
it has pretty neat effects. I think the actress playing Leon is really good. I think the doctor is really good. I guess my problems with it are twofold. One, it's surreal to the extent that I often find myself going, what is going on? What was that? Why is this happening? Dreyer is clearly very, very good and adept at setting the tone and atmosphere of this movie to be horror, and that tone and atmosphere is established and maintained until the very end. There's no weird, like, sidesteps into pastoral or something like that. But for me, it just feels like there's no forward momentum. Um, It just feels like stuff just happens. And I, I don't know if that's, like, because Alan Gray can't act? Well, and he's not called upon to act either, right? He's sort of called upon to move through the story in this very passive, voyeuristic kind of way. Yeah, there's just no range of emotion from him. I get the same kind of feeling from some of the other characters where I find myself wondering, like, like they just had the carriage comes back with the carriage driver dead, and like a lot of the servants just kind of go back to doing whatever. So it that I think that's why it feels like stuff just happens because it doesn't feel like anyone's truly reacting to it. I mean, I think that it's probably a mistake to try and pick this movie apart based on like logic because I feel like the movie sets up this dream world atmosphere such that I think if you know if you expect anyone to be reacting to things in a realistic manner it's not really like a fair expectation based on the world that the film presents you with which operates more under the logic of how dreams work um where things kind of happen and then we move on I totally see what you're saying with oh it's a dream kind of world being set up and I am with you with that I just find myself going, like, because it's so consistent, I find myself going, what is happening? And I think, like, with that dream, I guess, atmosphere or structure, that's a sign that Dreyer is succeeding in making it a dream world. Mm -hmm. Because when you're having these weird dreams, you're often going, like, what is going on? Oh, let's go over here now. What is that? Yeah. But as an audience member, it's really difficult to get through. It's it's interesting your point about like the actors and how they don't have a lot of range because one of the things I feel about pretty much everyone in this movie except Leon because Leon goes through some changes because she's sort of fighting between like innocent girl dying and possible vampire. Yeah. But everybody else is kind of one thing. And I feel like they were cast just to kind of be that one thing. You can tell in a lot of ways that everyone was cast in this movie for their face Definitely. And just the value of archetype that that face communicates. Like, for me, for example, one of the most terrifying parts of this movie for me is just the face of Marguerite Chopin, the old vampire. I just find her very scary because she has this old, withered face that seems to just emanate malice and power. And it's very affecting to me. But she doesn't really do anything in the movie. She's just kind of there but she has enough presence from her appearance that that's, like, enough Mm. for me. You know, she's not really a character in the sense that Dracula's a character. She's sort of more of a a force. So part of the difficulty that you're having with Vampyr makes a lot of sense to me, because I think if there's, like, one word that might best describe the movie's overall style, it would just be unconventional. Like, if you've ever been taught standard 
Hollywood cinema techniques of how scenes should be shot and edited and how they should flow. Vampire breaks almost every single rule of that, from framing to editing to sound design. And what this means is it's a story that doesn't, you know, part of the goal of Hollywood-style filmmaking is to create a kind of invisible storytelling, where the story washes over you in such a sense that it's very easy to follow, and you don't even really find yourself being aware of the artifice and the techniques being used. Vampire goes entirely against that and creates a film that I think you have to be actively working to follow when you watch it, which can be hard because the film has such a dreamlike atmosphere that it kind of lulls you into being passive. Mm. When, in order to really engage with the film, you have to be extremely active to follow what's happening. And that's really interesting to me because, and and I'll probably find a chance to go into this a little later, um, that idea of passive versus active speaks directly to what the themes of the film are saying, in my opinion. Okay. Um, so that might be something that we can kind of address more near the end. But I think the important thing about the way that Vampire is shot and made is that it is clear that even though it's breaking all these rules, it's breaking them with a purpose. This isn't someone who doesn't know how to frame his shots or edit them together. You know, this isn't an amateur production, but it's telling its story in a manner which puts the audience as ill at ease and as kind of rudderless as the characters within the story. I totally agree that this movie necessitates an active audience. I kind of came to this point when thinking about the order that the events are told to us. Mm-hmm. So we see, we don't know he's a doctor yet, so I just describe him as the weird guy. <laughs> we see the weird guy and the old lady first. Mm-hmm. And then later, um, through Alan, he reads about vampires prolonging their old age. Mm-hmm. And then he sees the old lady in the context of being a vampire. Mm-hmm. Um, he reads later on how 25 years ago in this other country, there was a story about um, a doctor who would help a vampire get her victims, uh, and he was an accomplice with that. And then we get introduced to the weird guy in the context of, oh, here's the doctor mm-hmm. coming to take care of Leon. And so I feel like the active audience is required because of the order of these events being told to us. It means that our narrator, as in like, I'm using narrator to describe Alan because we see the events unfold to his point of view. Sure. And I'll clarify what I mean by narrator later on as well. Because it's only when he he is given the context of old person equals vampire that he sees the old lady as the vampire. I I feel like it's very, like, it's very much an unreliable narrator situation. I think the other reason why I I have kind of a frustrating thing with this movie, frustrating is the wrong word, but I don't see plot-wise why Alan Gray is necessary, besides the fact that the actor was funding the movie, because the house servant, Mm -hmm. the old man... Um, is the guy who actually goes and defeats the vampires. Uh, the vampire and her assistant. Sure. Um, as soon as he reads about Margaret Chopin having caused a case of vampirism and plague in this very village, like, a few years before, goes out, stakes her, 
um, and then follows to the mill and is actually the person who turns on the equipment to cause the flower to bury the doctor. Mm-hmm. So given that structure, I don't see why we need Alan Gray at all. Further to that point with this book being what tells people here or who the bad guys are, it's almost as if the book itself is the unreliable narrator because what it says isn't factual or logical. And I know you said earlier how like this movie builds a world where logic can't really be trusted. Mm-hmm. If this lady has been causing this mayhem in this village, um, so much so that it's in this book about the history of vampires, wouldn't she have already been staked? Or wouldn't he have already like known about her being a bad person mm-hmm. and like the rumor of her being a vampire? Like it, it's these like things that aren't lining up for me that makes me question whether the book is reliable. I think also because when it talks about the doctor as the assistant, um, it mentions how it was like many years ago and in a different country, yet we see that same example here. It just fits too nicely. Well, it's a very convenient book, that's for sure. And it reminds me of when someone has a bad dream and they try to explain away the subconscious. Like, oh, I had a dream where there was like this giant rat eating my hair, but earlier that day you had passed a pet store seeing like pet mice and you had gotten your hair cut. Mm-hmm. I, I can sort of see where your difficulties are coming from. Again, I think that trying to poke rational plot holes in this movie is almost like going against the point because I don't think this movie really sets itself up to have a plot that's going to... I don't think this movie's really too concerned with its own plot is I think a big part of it. And I think you're right, like the book is extremely convenient but i feel like that's that's basically its role in the story um is to clue everyone in to what they're supposed to do next i was thinking about something you mentioned in the first half of the show about dreyer wanting to show a kind of horror where you know you're kind of freaking yourself out and we kind of see that in the beginning with Alan kind of freaking himself out and thinking about, like, the man with the scythe as death a little Mm -hmm. bit. And I was thinking about that in relation to this book. And the fear that it kind of incites makes these characters, the servant and Alan, suspect the doctor as the vampire's assistant and suspect the old lady as the vampire. And I think that could have led into something really interesting, thinking about if the vampire and the doctor had not actually been a vampire and a vampire's assistant. Like, Oh, sure. Like, it's all in their head and they just went off and killed two innocent people. Yeah, but the movie shows it as true. Mm -hmm. Like, the woman is the vampire and the doctor was doing some bad stuff. So, yeah, these these are all, like, the thoughts that I'm kind of having in my brain. And I'm not saying that, like... This movie was terrible because it didn't do this, like, other ending that I just thought of or something. Didn't do your your Cracked.com <laughs> fan theory version? How it should have ended your head, version? Your head canon. I I'm not saying that, like, it would have even been better, but I... This was all coming out of me trying to grapple with, like, why I find this movie difficult to get through. And I think I was trying to think of a way that it would have had a bit more of that thrust or forward momentum that would have kept me a bit more engaged. I I feel like a lot of this comes down to trying to impose a kind of narrative logic on the structure of the film rather than engage with it on its own 
terms as kind of just this nightmare dreamscape. Like, one of the things that I think happens here is that I don't really think that Dreyer was very interested in telling a rational narrative plot line. And the other thing that I don't think he was very interested in was adhering to standard horror vampire narratives. And what I mean by that is that it feels to me like he was using the genre as a jumping off point to explore other things and do other things. And so all the things that are super important in a normal vampire movie kind of get left by the wayside here, and that creates this weird push-pull of expectation versus frustration in what gets focused on mm -hmm. uh, in this movie. Um, there's a consistent tension in this movie, I feel, between what you want the camera to be looking at and what the camera goes and looks at. Yeah. And this is something I really want to talk about in some depth. For sure. I think, uh, for me, like, that always made me feel like something was just out of the corner of my eye and I was missing it every time I happened to look that way. Exactly. That's exactly it. Like, we keep calling this movie dreamlike, and part of that is due to the unnerving imagery that's throughout the movie, as well as the bizarre progression of the story, uh, which you've said doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, it makes sense on this kind of gut emotional level. Like, yes, of course, this is what happens next. But when you try to, like, pull it apart logically, you're like, well, why didn't they whatever, right? But I feel like a another very important element that adds to the dreamlike feel of the film is the camera work. The camera in Vampire is very unique to me because it represents a distinct point of view, but that point of view is not any of the characters. You talked earlier about Alan Gray being a kind of narrator character, being the POV character of this movie. Um, and you also asked, like, why is Alan Gray necessary? Because he doesn't really do anything. I feel like the flip side to that is, like, why is Jonathan Harker necessary? He doesn't <laughs> do anything. Jonathan and Mina don't do anything in Dracula. It's Van Helsing who goes off and kills the vampire. I think similarly here, you've got Alan and Giselle, and then you've got the servant. But the camera in Vampire, it's constantly on the move. Uh, it darts its attention from character to character. It'll follow some people for a while and then switch to following someone else. We follow Alan for a good portion of the movie, but once we meet the Doctor and the Vampire, Alan goes away and we stay with the Doctor and the Vampire, and that's how we learn that they're evil people with a bottle of poison and stuff. The thing that I find most remarkable is that the characters in this movie continue to move and act when the camera is not on them. Like, oftentimes a character will look across a room... The camera will move to see what they're seeing. And then when the camera comes back to them, we see that the character has moved on to someplace else. There's a lot of things that Dreyer accomplishes with doing this. One of them is that he gets as many as, you know, three or four shots worth of information in one shot by having the camera kind of look here and then there and then over here. And it also keeps the action in the movie moving at a fairly brisk pace. But the effect I feel this has on the audience overall is a feeling of helplessness, of being a witness to events that you have no direct control or impact on. Uh, unlike many other films, actions in this story occur whether the audience can see them or not. Oftentimes, the camera reacts to a noise on the soundtrack, only to be too late to catch whatever happened when it finally looks over, uh, and you just see the aftermath. And I feel like this replicates the feeling that bad dreams often have, of being powerless to control or stop the events that are unfolding, which was something that 
I remember you bringing up when we talked about Usher where I was impatient with how long everything took in that movie and how drawn out the pacing was and you were pointing out that that replicated that feeling of things happening in a dream and you can't control them. Mm-hmm. Vampire is much quicker paced, I think. Things are always happening, the camera's always moving. Definitely. But the way that the camera moves still replicates that feeling because you look away and if you look away for a split second, you know, the doctor's already left and he's gone and where is he? I think that is interesting to think in the context of these characters hearing sounds that we don't hear mm-hmm. and we hear sounds that they don't react to. Yeah, or see. Yeah, and so it's the camera being its own individual character. We have a unique experience of these events different from the characters themselves. Exactly. Now, you bring up Alan's uselessness, and I want to take a little bit of issue with that. I totally see where that perception comes from, and it's tempting to call him the POV of the film because he seems at first to be just like the audience is, just as helpless. He's constantly witnessing horrors that he's powerless to stop. You know, he can only watch as the old man gets shot. Um, But eventually, his paralyzed and impotent voyeurism actually results in several successes at heroic acts. Uh, Alan is the one who stops Leon from taking the poison because of the dream he has, and because of the vision uh, that he has of his own burial, where he is at his most powerless because all he can do is lie in this coffin and watch them take him out of the room but it's because of the information he gains from that vision that he's able to rescue Giselle from the doctor's lair he knows she's there and where the key is because of that vision Alan gets to be more than a mere witness because he's an outsider Um, the film goes to a lot of lengths to talk about the fact that he's a little bit weird and a little bit different from other people Um, but in a more basic sense he's an outsider to Cortempierre Everyone else is uh, from this village. And because he's outside the village, I feel like he's outside the spell of the vampire, the magic that's been put on this place. And because of that, he's able to act against her interests and sort of move outside of the series of events she's put into place. Uh, It's for this reason that she identifies he's a threat to her. His insights come to him in these visions uh, that might be dreams or they might be something more. Um, you know, these shadows throughout the film lead him to wherever he needs to go at any time. You know, you point out that it's the book that he gets that allows him to know what he needs to know when he needs to know it. Um, and I become very interested in how did the Lord of the Manor get this book and why did he know to pass it on to Alan? I'll say that there's a feeling of, in this movie, there are the forces of darkness that's the vampire and her servants. And the thing that strikes me about Vampire is there's a spirituality to it as a film that isn't really there in, like, a lot of other vampire movies we've seen. Like, the spirituality element's kind of neutered in Dracula, for example. But in this movie, you've got, like, the nun that's always watching over Leon. You've got the text of the book that makes it explicit that the real danger in this film is not Leon's death, but the fate of her soul. Um, you know, when Leon passes away, it's this peaceful moment because we know her soul has been saved because the vampire's been vanquished. And so what I start to wonder is, are there, is there a force at play in this film that's leading the characters to do the things they need to do that is, you know, the force of good? Mm-hmm. You know, is there a holy religious force, perhaps, that's making sure that Alan or the servant are where they need to be, when they need to be, and receiving the information they need when they need to receive it? 
Yeah. Um, and coming off the fact that Dreyer's, you know, film before this was Joan of Arc, and his film after this is about religious paranoia and witch hunts and stuff, I just feel like there's, like, a spirituality to this director that bears keeping in mind when looking at this movie. So it makes me wonder, who is the active person in this? Mm-hmm. Um, because if they are being given information as a at a need-to-know basis, yeah. then who is the active player in this? I think it changes at different moments of the film, and this is reflected by the way the camera kind of moves throughout the film from person to person. I think sometimes it's Alan, sometimes it's the old servant. I do think it's always important to keep in mind that even if there's a subtext, maybe, that you know, God is maybe speaking to these people to defeat this vampire, uh, which I think is the subtext I just made an argument for. Yeah. Um, that, you know, the Christian theology of free will says that they still have the choice of whether or not to act on the information they've been given. And I think that means that these characters are still active participants in this story. I think the question of active versus passive is very important to this film Mm -hmm. because as Alan walks through the story and observes things, we see a lot of people kind of passively acting out the story that's expected of them. You know, Leon's going to die. These people are just sitting around her bed waiting for her to die. You know, everyone's kind of dancing to the vampire's tune, as it were. And she can make that tune start or stop as she so desires. But as Alan moves into the story and affects things people find themselves able to separate themselves from that expected chain of events and do new things that go against that expectation, particularly Alan and the servant. I think that makes a case for why Alan is necessary to the plot Mm -hmm. at large. Like, I opened this episode by being like, Alan isn't necessary to the plot. Mm -hmm. He's here because he's funding everything. (laughs) But I think this makes a case for why... Um, both with your comments of him being an outsider and upsetting the tune the -hmm. vampire is putting in, but I think it also makes a case for why, if there's these supernatural forces at play that are actively causing people to do the roles that are set out to them. Mm -hmm. Um, So in the case of one force being the vampire, and then this supernatural force, we'll say God, giving the people the knowledge that they need to know at whatever moment, the fact that the book goes to Alan first is interesting. Given that he's had a lot of visions, it makes me wonder if the Lord of the House coming to him in the beginning, if that's a dream or not. Um, And if it is, then I feel like maybe it's not the Lord of the Manor himself, but the... The Lord. The Lord. Well, because I think there's a lot of visual evidence to support that argument. I was never... 100% comfortable making that argument myself, but there's a lot of visual evidence to support it. Like, Alan, when he goes to bed at night in that scene, is shown locking his door. Yeah. And then somehow, the Lord of the Manor gets into his room from the outside, and we see the lock turn from the other side, and he comes in. The lighting changes and shifts, right? Like, it's dark in the room, and then this light starts glowing from the floor, when the Lord of the Manor comes into the room, and he just says, she must not die, 
and leaves him with the package and then leaves. That's a super weird thing to do. But if we remember that Alan has these visions later in the film that impart information to him, I think the idea that he's been given the book by a supernatural force that's taken the form of the Lord of the Manor so that Alan will recognize that old man when he sees him later and understand that this is where he needs to be, like, this starts to make sense a lot more. Yeah. So I feel like we've kind of, we've gone over the, the themes and the structure of this movie quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to take just a small moment to give some shout-outs to some of the more just standard technical stuff of a movie like music and sound and lighting and such. Yeah. Um, I feel like the main appeal of Vampire to many people is probably its imagery. It conjures these unnerving visions of impossible supernatural occurrences. And you, you were so on the nose about saying that they feel like they're always happening just out of sight. Yeah. It's, to me, a film that's both beautiful and horrific because it's able to bring to life these dark images of the neurotic subconscious. The sound design and the music and how they interact with the visuals in this movie, I feel, form like a huge part of the story's unsettling atmosphere um, with the way that there's always these weird noises happening off camera and then the camera, like, swings over to look to see what happened over there. Yeah, I as someone who works with audio... This movie is really interesting. I have to say, it drives me up the wall. It really grinds my gears (laughs) when, like, it just cuts out um, for, like, five seconds and then picks up when we've cut to a new scene or something. My guess is either it's purposeful or something got lost when they were restoring it. But it, oh, if it was purposeful, it, oh, it, it really gets my goat. There's, there's times where it feels like, oh, they just lost the audio track here. There are other times when it does feel purposeful because, like, the sound will cut out and then they'll, like, go and see and look out a window at something and the sound will come back. As if um, they noticed it cutting. Yeah, as if, exactly, like, as if the sound cutting out was their motivation to go look at the window. There's a lot of really interesting stuff and it, it bears in mind that almost all the sound of this movie is post, yeah. right? That was done in a studio in post and built. My favorite moment of sound use in this movie, uh, and there's a few, but like my favorite is in the factory uh, when Alan first is sort of seeing these strange things and seeing the vampire for the first time. There's this music track that's very dark and foreboding, and then it just fades into this like umpampa waltz. And at first we don't know why. Yeah. And then it's actually a little bit later that we see that there's these ghost shadows dancing this waltz and doing this oompa-pa, and it's explained after. And this movie does this continually, where we hear the sound first and see the explanation later. And then this cacophony of music kind of builds and builds and builds until the vampire walks in and yells, silence, and then it all just stops. And I love that moment so much. I really enjoy when the line between diegetic and non-diegetic music or whatever blur. Yes. Diegetic and non-diegetic being music or sounds external to the film's world or within. And when that line is blurred, like Ben's just explained. Yeah, like the, the vampire herself has control over the movie's soundtrack. Yeah. There's also a lot of just really great special effects in this movie. Like, there's camera tricks and other effects that get used here that are remarkably potent and they remind me that like at one point in the development of this genre 
it felt like the point of horror movies was using the power of cinema to create these simulations of the supernatural. And we haven't really seen that kind of thing in a while. It feels like I think maybe Student of Prague... 1926 was the last kind of time we saw these kind of camera tricks, at least to this extent, throughout a whole movie. Mm. And there really was, like, a time when these kind of camera tricks was just, like, the whole point of these movies, you know? Yeah. I feel like with the rise of the Hollywood horror film, the focus has become more on, you know, the things that come naturally to Hollywood cinema, which is, like, character and story. And what we get in Vampire is a refocusing on the things that are important to, you know, European auteur cinema, which is basically visuals. How the medium itself is is giving the experience rather than just what is displayed. Yeah, absolutely. That's totally hitting the nail on the head because, yeah, it's it's like American film is out to tell a story and European or artistic film or whatever you want to call it is interested in film itself as a medium. Why do you think that is? Like, the difference in philosophy about the medium. Well, like, a lot of the early European auteurs got their start as film critics themselves, right? When we were talking about French Impressionism, you had these guys like Jean Epstein who were originally critics who were writing about film. And so then you start applying those critical philosophies in your writing to the way you make film as well. You know, these guys were looking at film in the context of other art movements instead of looking at it as a commercial uh, enterprise. Oh, oh, you know what? There is one other thing I wanted to bring up before we moved into ranking. What's that? It's the fact that there's this really stunning element of the way this movie's story is structured that I always, always stands out to me, which is that once the vampire is destroyed and both girls are rescued, the movie isn't over. Mm -hmm. It has this kind of, like, epilogue short film that shifts into the genre of horror that we identified in Freaks, which is the punishment genre, where all the horrific, awful things are happening to bad people. Um, when the Lord of the Manor becomes a ghost and hunts down the vampire's servants. Or, given the stuff we've been talking about, maybe it's a different kind of lord. I don't know. Yeah. Now, the Wrath of God. It just has always interested me that, like, the film takes the time to make sure that, like, everyone gets their comeuppance uh, and doesn't just kind of end with, you know, the day's been saved, but makes it important that we know that evil has also been punished. I remember when we first watched The Sealed Room. Right. And we saw these two people suffocating in a room. And it always is very parallel to me of seeing the doctor be buried by the flower because we keep cutting back to the doctor and the flowers higher and higher. And I, I don't know, how, like, I'm always amazed at, like, do they just, like, pay the guy a ton of money to hold his <laughs> breath? Because he is actually getting buried. Like, in the last shot that we see where his head gets completely covered, you can see him kind of, like moving very, very slightly because he's holding his breath and he's about to suffocate. Stop filming and get him out of there. It's really, I think, remarkable. And I think it says something to Dreyer's spirituality that I've kind of been talking about, that the most lingering and memorable image of horror in this movie is something that happens to a villain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we don't even get that much detail of that kind of shot or um, length of time spent on that shot with the vampire being staked. We no. cut away when it's 
when, when the point of contact of the stake going through the body occurs, and then we get a neat shot of the body morphing into a skeleton. Mm-hmm. But that's it. Even the, the soldier, the one-legged soldier, we hear him a, a yell, and then we turn, and he's fallen downstairs. We don't, his death isn't even on screen. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly significant that I think this is the first time we've ever had the when the vampire gets staked, there's a special effects shot. Yeah. But yeah, like the doctor gets the most drawn out death. Mm-hmm. I guess I've read somewhere that like that wasn't in the original script and got added to the movie because they found the mill nearby where they were shooting. <laughs> they were just like, oh, cool. Are we ready to move into ranking, Sarah? Yes. Okay. We've been anticipating for a while now the sort of showdown between this and Fall of the House of Usher, because we've identified so many stylistic similarities between them. I like one movie, you like the other. So I sort of started with Usher and looked around that area. Mm-hmm. I did the same. So I like this movie better than Usher. Um, again, I don't hate Usher, but it's a movie I admire more than I enjoy. Fall of the House of Usher is my floor, uh, number 11. Moving up from there... My ceiling is Nosferatu at number six. Um, Basically, I feel like at its best, Vampire isn't as good as Nosferatu. But at its best, Vampire is better than Phantom of the Opera. When Vampire is good, it's better than Phantom of the Opera. That said, at its worst, Vampire's about equivalent to Fall of the House of Usher. They're very similar in that way. What are you identifying as... At its worst. That's hard for me to say because I really like Vampire and I like all the elements of it. But I guess if I were to talk about it in a broad sense, like those times when Vampire is at its most opaque about what's going on or at its most frustrating in terms of its pacing, um, those times when you wish the movie would just get on with it or make what's happening make a little bit more sense so you can follow it more easily, you know, that's about equivalent to Usher. The times when Vampire's really doing something incredible in terms of its visual or its mood, to me, excels over Fan of the Opera, which has a tendency to fall into romance melodrama as opposed to horror when it's not good. Fan's <laughs> <laughs> more uneven than this movie. The other thing about Vampire is I can kind of identify more of like an artistic, singular through line with Vampire than with Phantom, which sometimes feels like it was cobbled together by committee because it was. Yeah. I also started looking around Fall of the House of Usher, and it's funny that you use that as your floor because um, before the discussion, I was using that as my ceiling. Sure, because you knew you liked Usher more than Vampire. (laughs) Makes sense. After discussing things, I feel like my range is probably adjusted a little bit. Okay. Because I think both Fall of the House of Usher and Vampire are taking their inspiration from something that was written. Mm-hmm. And they both use that as a jumping off point. Fall of the House of Usher didn't, I think, mean to use it as a jumping off point. But as you pointed out, Jean Epstein identified too hard with who should have been the villain. Mm-hmm. Vampire, it's, like, very clear that, you know, they used Lefanu as a jumping-off point, taking inspiration from him and making their own thing, 
and I, I was serious in the first half when I feel like LeFanu would be a fan of that because mm-hmm. he did that with his own stuff. Mm-hmm. Where I'm kind of going with this as well is you identified a very interesting through line with Vampire that is supported with looking at things a little metatextually, looking at things um, on a thematic level, and even looking at things on like a plot level with like the battle of passive and active and supernatural forces and things like that. And I think that through line is stronger than the attempted through line in Usher that kind of doesn't work because Epstein was trying to adapt Poe but failed because he identified too hard with his villain. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I think what would be good is if we sort of made the crucial call of whether Vampire goes uh, above or below Usher first, and then we can either work up or down kind of from there, since that's definitely the sticking point. Where I was leading is that I feel Vampire goes above Fall of the House of Usher. Okay. I tried to think for a while about what I liked about Vampire more than Usher, because they are so similar. Uh, in tone. And, and, you know, and the tone is something, you know, if you asked me what's great about Vampire, I would say, oh, it's like, it's like a dream. It's like a nightmare. And if you asked me what I didn't like about Usher, I'd be like, oh, it's too dreamlike. It never goes anywhere. Like, (laughs) you know, how can I damn one film for what I like in another? Part of it is that I feel like on a gut level, Carl Dreyer is just a better filmmaker than Jean Epstein. (laughs) Shots fired. Yeah. But... As I was thinking about it, I was also thinking about some of the themes I identified in Vampire, um, passivity versus active. We've identified that both Vampire and Usher have the same dreamlike, nightmarish feeling of helplessness, where events are happening and you can't stop them. You know, we've talked a lot about how the fear in Usher was the inevitability of fate. What distinguishes Vampire for me is that it has active characters. The cast in Usher just sort of fatalistically go through the motions of their story. The way I interpret that film, they don't seem to have really a lot of agency to make their own decisions or fight against fate. Roderick must paint Madeline. The narrator of that story could leave the house at any time, but he doesn't. He just sticks around until it starts to collapse around him because he needs to be there for someone to be the narrator. These characters in Usher enact evil passively. Roderick kills his sister because he's fated to do it. And then, at the end of the film, they are just spared from the consequences of fate. Fate draws them to a tragic conclusion, and then they just kind of sidestep it at the end. Yeah. In Vampire, evil besets the people, and it does the same thing. It draws them into this inevitable tragedy. But the people are saved when they're able to rise out of their dreamlike stupor and become active participants in the story. And I think at the end of the day, that's the thing that makes me like the one over the other. Okay. So if we are agreed in putting Vampire over Usher, we move up the list. Um, What do we think about it versus Freaks? Yeah, so I was torn because I think the ending of Freaks is more terrifying, but Freaks was very uneven. Vampire maintains that tone and atmosphere throughout the entire film. Yeah, for sure. Like, Vampire is Vampire from the word go right to the end. It is it is a, a consistent piece in a way that Freaks is not. So then if we're looking above Freaks, we come to 
the remake of Student of Prague. And I feel like this is where it starts to become, for me, a tougher battle between Vampire and some of these other films. Yeah, I really feel like my gut is saying that Vampire goes below the Cat and the Canary, above the Student of Prague. Okay. Um, and I think the reason for that is Cat and the Canary and Vampire are pretty good contenders for how they maintain their style throughout the entire film. Okay, sure. In that Student of Prague, even the remake still does that thing where it kind of starts in one place and ends in another. Is that sort of what you're identifying? Um, I think it is, and I think it's also because, like, we don't we don't see Scapinelli at the end of that one. Oh, yeah, he just kind of gets forgotten by the story. I, I'd forgotten that. Yeah, so there's, like, a part of me that feels like the Student of Prague remake feels a little unfinished because of that. Right, whereas Vampire really wants to make sure that you know that it's gone out of its way to tie up all its loose ends. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. If we're comparing Vampire and Cat in the Canary, I agree with you on the consistency of style. Does Cat in the Canary lose points because it's much more focused on comic relief in comparison to Vampire? There's no comedy in Vampire. Cat in the Canary, we have to sit through like that guy. Ooh, he's accidentally under the bed and looking at the ladies changing. Oh, my mer. Oh, fuck. I must have like blocked that part out. What would you say the f- source of fear is in Vampire? Um, I mean, if I really had to think about it, Sarah, it's damnation. Okay. Like, it's, you know, dying without a, without being saved, you know, which either is a potential fate for Leon, or is something, you know, that already happened to the vampire and thus created her, uh, and has enabled, therefore, her to enact this evil and suffering on everyone. So, yeah, I guess it would be damnation. Which, if you'd asked me, like, yesterday what I thought the source of fear in Vampire was, I don't think I would have answered that. (laughs) I think in how it conveys its sources of fear. Like, the source of fear in, fear in Ken the Canary is, like, not being able to trust those who should be your family, not being able to trust yourself because they're trying to convince you that you're insane so mm-hmm. that they get the money, whatever. That is more explicit and supported um, through its use of, like, German Expressionist style than, like, this film... Vampire does a really great job of having its visuals support what it's trying to convey with a dreamlike feeling, and I think you, what you've said about the supernatural, passive active, all of that is really supported at all elements of this film. But it's more explicit in Cat and the Canary what it's trying to get across versus Vampire. So I think a counter argument would be that the anxieties and fears in Cat in the Canary speak to you more because Cat in the Canary is about the fact that, like, society's going to try and gaslight you if you're a woman and you've come into money. And Vampire's about the fate of your eternal soul. And if you're not religious, particularly if you're not Catholic, like, Vampire feels like a very French Catholic film to me. Which is ironic because the critics were like, Joan of Arc wasn't Catholic enough or French enough. Yeah. But those critics were wrong anyways. Joan of Arc is a very French Catholic movie. (laughs) Um, But remember, we don't want to be comparing fears. No, no, no. What I'm trying to say, though, is I think that 
the reason why the one movie maybe speaks more to you than the other is just because the one, you know, Cat in the Canary, what it's talking about is more uh, relatable for you. Like, we're not religious people, so this very religious film maybe comes off as just kind of another ghost story. I don't know. It's it's not as relatable for us. Uh, I do see what you're saying, you know, in the comparison. Part of me still feels like the fact that Cat in the Canary still has its one foot in comedy. But remember how effective it was at balancing that horror and comedy in the context of the films that had come before it. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's just something to be said for the consistency of tone that Vampire maintains, which you've pointed out a few times now. But I do see what you're saying in the sense that I'm making the argument that the fear in Vampire is the fear of damnation, but in terms of the visual language of the film, a lot of what's going on in the movie is made vague and kind of purposely vague by the storytelling. I like that it's vague because I think it helps the supernatural elements in Vampire maintain their power and their mystery. Nothing really makes things lamer than when you're in a movie and someone starts like explaining the rules of how magic works or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I will say that there's something to be said for the fact that Cat in the Canary is explicit in what it's talking about, where Vampire is implicit. Mm-hmm. And in ranking horror movies, we often consider how clear it is what we're supposed to be afraid of and how it represents that. Mm, sure. This is tough for me because um, I feel like Cat in the Canary is as high as it is on the list because I really liked it. <laughs> And, and now it's come back to haunt you. Well, yeah, because I I think I like Vampire more than I like Cat in the Canary, but I'm going to have to make a compromise here because I've certainly talked you up on this movie from where your kind of starting position was. Yeah, honestly, my starting position was, like, if it wasn't just above Usher, mm. it was going to be below it. Right. Honestly, Sarah, like, my gut really wants to put it below Nosferatu, above Phantom of the Opera. And and you're sort of arguing for, like, a couple spots down from there. This this list is only going to get harder to do I know. as we go. Especially when we start, like, you know, comparing movies from the 80s with stuff from the 30s and we're having to remember things we watched, like, two years ago or whatever. Um, okay, I have, I have a question for you sure. before we kind of move on. What's better about Phantom of the Opera than Vampire? Um, I remember in the Phantom of the Opera episode, I kept talking about the spectacle. Yes. And use of spectacle. I think Vampire does visual tricks as well in a sense of, like, maybe not in a spectacle kind of way, <laughs> but in a, like, similar, like, mood-setting kind of way. That's redundant to say. It's a film. Of course it's using image to tell a story. Ugh, whatever. I think they're using their visual language to specific points. Mm-hmm. And I think they both do so well. I I honestly feel like the structure really helps Phantom of the Opera. As much as it's like hacked to pieces, glued back together, thrown on the ground, stomped on, and then taped back together, um, it still makes sense. And it got 
better in each incarnation. Hmm. So, the argument would be that the Phantom of the Opera's story is strong enough... To undergo these transformations. Vampire, we're seeing its unified product. We haven't seen what it got transformed into in like these derivative versions um, as the movie was losing money in these mm-hmm. different releases and premieres. But I think because it's... I don't know if Vampire could withstand that same process. No, from what I've heard of like the subsequent releases like Castle of Doom, the US releases, that like they're basically incomprehensible. And that doesn't surprise me. Um, you remind me of something that I think it was my dad who once said that if you have to kind of chop up a story into a weird order in order to make it interesting, then the story wasn't that strong to begin with. And, like, there's a lot of stuff I love about Vampire, but, yeah, like, on paper, the story is very, very simple with not a lot to it. What's interesting about Vampire is the way it tells its story, not necessarily the story itself. Yeah. Phantom definitely has that forward momentum that I'm missing from this movie. The reason I asked was because part of me was feeling like Vampire might be better than Phantom, and I wasn't comfortable putting it below Cat and the Canary if it was a better movie than Phantom, so I wanted to articulate what about Phantom was better before I was comfortable with putting Vampire lower than Phantom. Um, Having said that, I think I'm comfortable with kind of putting it where you're wanting to put it. So below Cat and the Canary... Above Student of Prague. Okay. Based on kind of the arguments you've made about implicity, implicity versus explicity in how they're talking about their themes and story. Yeah. All right, so then entering the list at number nine after quite a bit of debate is Vampire from 1932, directed by Carl Th. Dreyer. What do you do the Th? It's... My little in-joke, because Carl Theodore Dreyer always writes his name where instead of abbreviating his middle name with a T, he abbreviates it with a TH. So it's just my little in-joke, whenever I read his name, that it should be said Carl Th. Dreyer. If you would like to see this list, you can check it out at our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There is an ask box where you can submit appeals questions, comments, concerns. If you are not a fan of Tumblr, you can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. If it shakes you to your core that Fall of the House of Usher is below Vampire, send us a message. I'd really love to hear your point of view. Feel free to also talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday and is available on iTunes and SoundCloud, as well as other podcatching services that are linked to those two. On either iTunes or SoundCloud, we'd appreciate it if you left a review or a comment. Uh, Reviews help us get seen by other listeners. You can always just let your friends know about us. It's October. It's the Halloween times. And if people you know are in the mood for some podcasts about creepy horror classics, then we're right up their alley. We literally have enough content to last you for every single day of October. Oh yeah, I guess it's our 30th episode? 31st. Ah, that's why you said every day of October. Come on, Ben, keep up. There's Inktober, 
But there's also Scream Scene-tober. Sure, sure. <laughs> That's not as catchy. <laughs> what are we watching next? What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, listeners, I have yet to procure any kind of copy of the 1932 sound remake of Unheimliche Geschichten by Richard Oswald, starring Paul Wigner. Uh, without having a version that we can watch on the show, we won't be able to watch it on the show. Uh, so if nothing changes between now and next week, it looks like next week's episode is going to be White Zombie, directed by and produced by the Halperin Brothers, starring Bela Lugosi. Yay, Bela! And the first zombie film ever, not the last. Yeah, these aren't your Romero zombies. Yes, precisely. Yeah. We will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye!